Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com. Sketches from Scripture presents Great News, a teaching series from the Gospel of Matthew. The Jewish nation had put their trust in the God of Abraham, the law of Moses, and the kingdom of David. But by the first century, they were under Roman rule, their moral culture was eroding, and it seemed their God was hidden away behind gates and curtains. Suddenly, an unknown manual laborer from a small village hits the streets with a fantastic announcement. The Gospel according to Matthew tells the story of a self-proclaimed rabbi from Nazareth who took Galilee by storm, then Judea, then Jerusalem, then Samaria, then the whole Roman world to the entire earth. In his many teachings and stories, Rabbi Yeshua brings but one message. Your heart and life can be changed because God, King of the universe, is right in front of you. So follow me. This is Great News. Coming out of the last lesson, we just learned about the first and the last. The last will be first. The first will be last. Jesus reiterates this point a number of times. And so coming right out of that here in Matthew 20 and verse 17, Jesus predicts his death yet again. This is, as you can see from the title here, the third prediction of his death. And he's giving details now. He's being very open with the disciples about what's going to happen. And so I want to call your attention once again to the structure of Matthew. So we have in the beginning, uh, you know, Jesus being born. And at the end, of course, we have the crucifixion, resurrection, and all that. But the, the, the majority of Matthew, the meat of Matthew in the middle is five major sections, and they're centered around five discourses. So you have narrative and then a discourse. So the narrative sets up and provides context for the discourse. If you've been here for any of the Old Testament lessons that we've done, you've heard me talk about a chiasm where uh, a story is told in a certain order, then something happens. The chi, the X, the, the, the thing that changes everything, uh, changes the whole world that the story is told in. And then the story is sort of told in reverse order, but now with everything having been changed. And so we see that sort of chiastic structure, this chiasmus, this chiasm structure happening in Matthew with the five discourses. So in the beginning, Jesus is doing the kingdom announced. He's announcing, hey, the kingdom's on its way. The second discourse is he's talking about kingdom authority. This is what it's going to look like when um, you know the, the kingdom has authority over thing, when the king has authority over everything, when the people of the kingdom are given authority, there's here's what they can do. Uh, he sends the disciples out on mission. Then there's kingdom arrival. Jesus is saying, hey, it's here. Everything that you need to know about the kingdom, it's all happening now. And he shows some things about um, what happens when, when the kingdom is alive and interacting uh, in the world as we know it. Then there's kingdom action, which the discourse in the middle of this is the community regulations discourse, or uh, basically how how do people in the kingdom live and act? What are they going to do? What's what's their mission? What's the mission of the church? What's the mission of this kingdom? 
And the fifth discourse is the kingdom age. And that is the discourse that we're moving toward now, moving out of the kingdom action and moving into the kingdom age. And so with 19 and what we've read of 20 so far, Jesus has really set up this idea that the last will be first, the first will be last. He's really set up the idea that anyone that gets anything from God should be grateful because it is God who chooses to give. It's God who chooses to be gracious. It's God who chooses to be merciful. And that while we have uh, a role to play, while we have um, the, the, the choices that we need to make, we can only make those because God first cho- chose us. God first selected us, elected us, and loved us, was merciful to us. And so as Jesus sets that foundational context, now, uh, beginning with this scripture here where he talks about moving into Jerusalem. So you'll see uh, at the beginning of verse 17, it says, while going up to Jerusalem. So this is the last trip to Jerusalem. This is heading into Jerusalem for the crucifixion. Jesus really begins talking about the consummation of the age, the consummation of the kingdom. In other words, okay, the kingdom's coming, the kingdom is here. And now with the, the actions that are going to happen in Jerusalem, it's now going to be, everything's going to belong to the kingdom. And you're going to see that language really repeated. And what you see is Jesus using a lot of stories, a lot of parables, a lot of uh, dialogue that has to do with marriage. Now, there's a couple of reasons for this. One is marriage was you know, uh, a big part of everyday Jewish life. There was always a family, you know, experiencing a marriage. It's just like marriages, we go to several marriages a year in, in our in our life. It was a, a big part, probably a bigger part of the life of a first century Jew. So in the same way that Jesus draws from, you know, uh, agriculture stories or, or financial stories that people would be familiar with, he draws on marriage stories because it's very familiar to everyone who would be hearing him. But I think there's another reason that he uses this particular motif in some of the stories that we're going to look at from here all the way to the end of Matthew. And that's because just like in, uh, as it's reiterated in, in Revelation and elsewhere, Jesus really sees his union with the church very much like marriage. When two things are put together, no one can tear them apart. Think back to the beginning of chapter 19. What was the first discussion that opened up this entire bit of text? It was about divorce and marriage. So again, there's things about divorce and marriage between a man and a woman that we can learn from that passage. But if we're looking at the storytelling of Matthew, if we're looking at that section of scripture in context, it is setting us up for an idea of marriage and family, the idea that Jesus and God, Jesus as God, wants to be married to each of us, wants to be joined to us as family. Paul will use very similar language in places like Ephesians, where he talks about adoption, that we're adopted into the family, that we're co-heirs with Christ. It's like we're we're twin brothers, twin sisters with Christ, sharing in everything that he has because we are hidden in him. And so this kingdom age, this consummation of the age, Jesus uses a lot of sort of marriage terminology to talk about it. So uh, beginning here in 2017, We see them moving into Jerusalem, heading for the things that Jesus has been talking about that he will need to suffer and die. Then we see James and John's mother approaching Jesus, and she says, I promise that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right, one on the left, when you come into your kingdom. Verse 22, Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? 
We are able, they said to him. That would be James and John. He told them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right and left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. So take note of what's happening here. The mother of James and John says, I want my children to sit one on your right hand, one on your left hand when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, can you drink the cup? Uh, In other words, can you go through everything that I'm going to have to go through? Because if you're at my left and right, you're going to have to go through all the suffering that I've just got done telling you is going to happen. And James and John say, hey, we're able to do it. We're able to drink the cup that you're about to drink. We can we can handle it. And so Jesus says, well, here's what I can tell you. You will drink the cup, but I can't guarantee you the seat. <laughs> so kind of what happens here is almost like a negotiation, but it, it, but there's a twist to it, right? So um, they say, we want the place of honor. And Jesus says, well, to do it, you have to go through the suffering. And they say, we're willing to go through the suffering. And Jesus says, fine, you will go through the suffering, but, but I can't give you the seat. That's not mine to give. So that's kind of a twist on the negotiation that happens here. And what is really interesting is if you consider, say, the Last Supper, the place where Jesus sort of comes into his kingdom, he's got people sitting on his left and his right. The way that they're sitting, we'll talk about this more when we get into the Last Supper, but there's um, the, Jesus would probably be sitting in the host's place, which would be up near the head of the table. And there would be a place on his right hand, which would be the place of highest honor, and a place on his left hand, which would be the seat of second highest honor. And this is kind of what the mother is referring to. But we know from the details given to us in the Gospel of John, we know who's sitting next to him. We know that John does sit at his right hand and is there experiencing this wonderful moment uh, really, it's a betrothal ceremony. Again, going back to that marriage idea, it's a betrothal ceremony. That's what the Last Supper is. John is there at his right hand, but who's at his left hand? It's the one who dips in the bowl with him. What's well, Judas? Judas is on his left hand. And how many times in Scripture do you see, you know, the the, the sheep and the goats, the sheep on my right and the goats on my left, and the, those on my right, I say come in, and those on my left, I say get out. You know, and we see that playing out at the Last Supper. And so when the mother of James and John says, I want one on the right and one on the left, Jesus says, hey, lady, you don't know what you're asking, right? It's literally what he says, right? So we see there's a whole lot playing into this story, setting us up, preparing us for what's about to come in the Last Supper. But more happens. So um, because this interchange takes place between James and John and their mother and uh, Jesus himself, the other 10 disciples get really indignant about it. And they begin arguing over who is the greatest. And um, Jesus, again, reminds them that this is not the way that we're going to behave, that members of this kingdom must behave differently. And so, uh, again, as we're doing all this kingdom talk, I would just appeal. There's a lot of political things going on right now. And there's a lot of political um, uh, anger and force and um, a lot of sh- shouting and criticism and and judging and shutting out. And I'm, I'm not immune to it. I, I, I don't really care about sports. Politics is my sports. I enjoy, I enjoy watching political stuff the way other people like watching football. I don't really care much about football, but I'll, I'll watch a political debate all day long. I love that stuff. But so I'm, I'm, not immune to it either. But with all that stuff that's going on, particularly right now in, in a way that that hasn't been 
that hasn't happened in America in decades, if ever. We must remember, as proud as we are to be Americans, as thankful as we are for our constitution and our laws and, and our, our governmental structure and all the things that we, we may love about America, in spite of all that, despite all that, we must remember we are first citizens of the kingdom of God. And so just like in this situation here, this is a good chance to remind everybody when you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, you're operating on a different level, you're, you're thinking about different things, and you cannot get entangled in the same things that everybody gets entangled in in the world. You must operate according to the mission of the kingdom. And so that's really what's going on here uh, in this section. So next we have two blind men healed. And this echoes um, uh, uh, the healing of a blind man in Mark, where it's only one man. Matthew has two. In fact, Matthew tells a story of two blind men being healed twice, I believe. This is the second time. And so there's this question that gets raised. Why does Matthew double these things? So we're about to see also in the triumphal entry, which is the next story, uh, they go to get the, the, the colt for him to ride in on. It's a colt and its mother. There's two of them. And here you have two blind men. And, and earlier when there's a demon-possessed man, I think it's in chapter five, there's two demon-possessed men, not just one. And um, why does Matthew double these things? I have been really thinking about this over the last week or so. And I have a theory, but it's not very well thought through. Um, but it kind of goes something like this, especially here in this particular discourse, in this fifth discourse. Remember with the chiastic structure you're going to parallel. So let me put the uh, the uh, chiastic structure back up here. So this kingdom age um, part in part five is going to be parallel to the very first one the kingdom announced in part one. So what was the discourse for the kingdom announced? Well, that was the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount was very much, uh, you've heard this, it's been said this, but I tell you this. This is the way you behave now as a religious person, but this is the way you ought to behave as a disciple. This is the way you behave as a religious person in the world, but this is how you should behave and think as a citizen of the kingdom. And how does it end? There's two people. Both hear the teaching. One puts it into practice. One does not. One builds the house on rock. One builds the house on sand. The house on the rock stands. The house on the sand collapses with a great crash. That's how the Sermon on the Mount ends. This dichotomy between these two different kinds of people, those who put the, uh, who put the teachings into practice and those who do not put the teachings into practice. Part of me feels like Matthew doubles these things. It could be for emphasis. It could be just because there were two and Matthew was there and he knows. It could just be as simple as that. But I think rhetorically, I think as a storytelling device, it may be Matthew is drawing us, I, drawing us into the idea of two, because throughout this entire last section, everything about the judgment is, is, is in twos. It's the sheep and the goats. It's the right and the left. It's the in and the out. It's the saved and the lost. It's the, the invited and the cast out. Um, like I say, I, I've not been, had a chance to think through it really well, but we see that idea being presented here. Here's two men who are blind, and they are both given their vision. Uh, so next, what we move into is the triumphal entry in Matthew chapter 21. And so what we're going to see now are people, everyone can see, both groups of people can see, the Jews can see, the Jewish leaders can see, and the Jewish people.
people, the poor people can see, the Gentiles can see. And what we're going to see is even though they have vision, who will actually put these things into practice? And that dominates a lot of the stories that follow here. So in 21, we have the triumphal entry. Jesus comes in, coming down uh, from the Mount of Olives. He sends two disciples. Again, there's the number two. Sends them uh, to go find the donkey with her colt. Again, the animals here are doubled from the story in uh, Mark and Luke. And um, this is uh, from the prophecy in uh, Zechariah. And it's uh, chapter 9. Yeah, Zechariah 9, 9. And so uh, it says uh, on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this may be another reason Matthew doubles this particular details because it's mentioned twice here. And Matthew's just really trying to show, see, it really fulfills this prophecy from Zechariah because it's it's both the donkey and, uh, the, and the foal and the colt. So the disciples go and do that. They bring Jesus in on the colt. The crowd spreads their clothes on the rows. They have the branches, the palm branches, and they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. So one thing to know is that this is not the first triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Josephus records uh, one of the Caesars coming into Jerusalem and having an entry something like this. Um, in uh, the book of Maccabees, which is uh, part of what we call the Apocrypha, but it's stories of Jewish history. In the book of Maccabees, there's another uh, person that comes in and experiences something like this. You can read numerous stories from right around the same time of triumphal entries into Jerusalem. That's how everybody knew what to do. It wasn't people just spontaneously said, oh, let's throw our coats on the ground. Hey, why don't you grab some palm branches? That'd be a good idea. No, they knew they knew what to do. This is the way you treat a king who is entering. Remember, they did this for Caesar. This is how you do this for a king that is entering your town or entering your city. What's the first thing they call him? Hosanna to the son of David. Now, is that about his lineage? Is that about because he's a psalmist or because he's the good shepherd? No, it's because David was the king. What they're looking for is a Messiah. They're looking for the the chosen one who's from the lineage of David who will restore the Davidic kingdom. Get them out from under Roman rule and they will be a powerful kingdom once again. And so here is a son of David. Maybe this is the one. This is the one who will sit on the throne and rule it forever. They have some of that right, but they don't really understand what it means. And so they do this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And everyone is uh, in an uproar. They're asking, who is this? And they say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So Jesus goes to the temple and throughout all those buying and selling, we're in verse 12, he overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of thieves. Now, uh, we don't see this in this particular text, but what we learn from uh, other accounts of the temple cleansing is this. Where is all of this taking place? It's taking place in the Gentile courtyard. So the temple structure, you had the Holy of Holies, and in the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could go once a year. That's where God himself geographically resided uh, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, right? Then you had... Uh, outside of that, the holy area, this is where the priests did all of their work and uh, did the things that they were uh, charged to do. Outside of that, you had the place where the Jewish men could be. Outside of that, you had the place where only Jews could be. 
And then outside of that, the farthermost, the outside most um, courtyard is the place where Gentiles were allowed to come and worship, God-fearing Gentiles, because there were some. So what you have happening is Jews only concerned about the parts that they have to go in. So right outside of their um, Jewish courtyard, rather than letting the Gentiles have a space, they've set up a bunch of selling booths and they are buying and selling things that they need for the sacrifice for Passover. Uh, I think that if all of these things had been set up outside of the Gentile courtyard, Jesus would not have gone through and turned over the tables. He does this, I think, specifically because it's happening in the Gentile courtyard. So with this story right here, one of the things that we start to see, remember this idea of two, this seems to be very present, particularly in this last section in Matthew. The two things he is starting to compare and contrast is Jews and Gentiles. And he's really warming people up to the idea that Gentiles are going to obey and many of the Jews are not. He's got a very specific story about that here in just a moment. Remember, too, this isn't just about Jesus's actions at the time, but this is about Matthew writing to his first hearers. So by the time Matthew writes his gospel, there are already Gentiles in the church. And so in order for Matthew to convert Jews to believing that Jesus is the Messiah, to being baptized into Jesus and to being saved by Jesus, in order to convert them, he has to explain and convince them why Gentiles are allowed to be a part of this. Because by the time Matthew writes his gospel, at possible the earliest possible really is probably in the 60s, late 60s, um, maybe just before, just after Paul has, has uh, been executed. So you've got a good uh, a decade or two of Gentiles being part of the kingdom. So um, Matthew really has to make a case to his fellow Jews why that's okay. And in fact, Jesus uh, uses scripture and prophecy to proclaim this was always the plan. And so we see Matthew making that case with this particular story. Next, we see uh, children praising Jesus. We've talked about children before. They're totally dependent. So just after the idea of Gentiles uh, being allowed to worship God is brought into our mind, now we once again have a story of helpless children that are totally dependent on uh, Jesus. And people are trying to get the children out of there. And he says, oh, you've prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. He quotes the scripture here. Then he goes to Bethany and spends the night. The next morning, he sees the barren fig tree. And he says that there's no figs on it. So he says, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the tree withers. And the disciples are all amazed. And he says, if you had um, even a little bit of faith, you could uh, move mountains and if you believe whatever you receive, you'll ask for in prayer. So we often look at this story and we walk away thinking about the things that we can ask for in prayer and now get, because Jesus said we'd get them. But we fail to focus on the storytelling that's going on here. So let's not lose sight of the first part of the story. Jesus sees that the tree is not bearing fruit, and so he essentially curses it to die, it withers up and dies. Remember the, the repeated phrase several times in Matthew already, the brood of viper speech, Jesus says, if you don't bear fruit, you'll be cut off and thrown into the fire. John the Baptist said it. Jesus has said it two or three times now. I've lost count. And so now we see that same idea being played out in a parable, more than a parable, because it happens to an actual tree. It happens right in front of his disciples. But for those of us who are hearing this story, for the readers, for the hearers of Matthew, this is setting the stage because it's once again reminding us, if you don't bear fruit, you're going you're gonna to be shriveled up. You're going to be cut off and thrown into the fire. 
And look what happens uh, very next, right after this story. Jesus goes into the temple and his authority is challenged by who? Those who are not bearing fruit, the chief priest, the elders, the teachers, the scribes. They come to Jesus and they challenge him and they want to know what authority he has. Well, Jesus has talked about his authority uh, numerous times in the previous discourses. So he just turns the question on them. I'll ask you one question. You answer it for me. Um, did John's baptism come from heaven or was it of human origin? And they don't want to answer because if they say from heaven, Jesus will obviously say, well, then why didn't you believe John? If they say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone considered John to be a prophet. So they said, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. So you see Jesus um, really taking these teachers, these teachers of the law, taking them to task on the things that they're supposed to know and things that they're supposed to teach. Again, setting that stage for who's going to be saved in the last day and who's going to be judged, cut off and thrown into the fire. So look at the very next story. Look at this parable. It leads right out of that. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, my son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I don't want to. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the man who went to, uh, went to the other and said the same thing. I will, sir, he answered, but he didn't go. Which of the two did his father's will? They said the first. Okay. So once again, you got a, a, a father with two sons. He tells one, go work. The son says, no, I won't do it. But he changes his mind later and he does it. He says to the second one, go work. And the son says, I will, but he doesn't. Which one actually obeys? Well, obviously the one that went and did it, no matter what he said, right? It's not what people say, it's what they do. And Jesus makes his point explicit in the following paragraph. Truly, I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness. So even though he said he wasn't going to tell him by what authority, he's giving him a lesson on John now, right? For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. But you, when you saw it, you didn't even change your minds then and believe him. So here's another parable. There's a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. He leased it to tenant farmers and went away. When the time came to harvest fruit, he sent his servants to the farmers to collect his fruit. The farmers took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first group, and they did the same to them. Jesus here is making an analogy with all the prophets uh, throughout the Old Testament, trying to get Israel back on track, back in good relationship with God. Uh, verse 37, finally, he sent them, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. Jesus obviously talking about himself. But when the tenant farmers saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. This is Jesus prognosticating, knowing what they're going to do in just a few days. Therefore, when the verse, verse 40, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those farmers? Even, even the teachers know the answer to this story. Look what they say in verse 41. He will completely destroy those terrible men, they told him, and lease his vineyard to other farmers who will give him his fruit at the harvest. Jesus said to them, have you never read in scriptures? And he gives the um, quote about uh, the stone becoming the cornerstone and letting them know that whoever trips on it, whoever it falls upon, that they will be shattered. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they knew he was speaking about them. And although they were looking for a way to arrest him, they feared the crowds because the people regarded him as a prophet. So Jesus has been very explicit here in letting them know there's two kinds of people, people who put 
my teachings into practice and people who don't. And just because you can teach my teachings doesn't mean you're doing my teachings. And people who have never heard my teachings but are going out and obeying them, they're the ones who are my followers. They're the ones who are in the kingdom. They're the ones who are part of the wedding party. And so we see now this next parable, the parable of the wedding banquet. Once again, you have people who are invited, but everybody has excuses of why they can or can't come, and they not, none of them come. So um, they send the, the verse seven, the king was enraged and sent out his troops, uh, killed those murderers and burnt down their city. Uh, verse nine, go to where the roads exit the city and invite everyone you find to the banquet. So those servants went out on the roads and gathered everyone they found, both good, evil and good. The wedding banquet was filled with guests. When the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed for a wedding. So he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him up hand and foot, throw him to the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. So Jesus is letting them know, this is not just, we're not just switching places here. But the point is, people who obey the teachings will be part of the party, will be part of the wedding. Just because I'm opening it up into gen opening up to Gentiles doesn't mean all Gentiles will come because some will show up after being invited and they will not be prepared. They will not be clothed for the wedding. They will not have been baptized. They will not understand what it means that they have been invited. They will be thrown out because they're not prepared for the wedding that's happening. Only those who are invited and prepared and actually show up. So the Pharisees are invited. You could say in a lot of ways they're prepared, but they're not showing up. They're not doing the work. They're not, they're not obeying and they're not producing fruit. Then you have Gentiles who all of a sudden are invited, who all of a sudden are taught by people like Peter and Paul and Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila and, um, uh, and, and others, Epaphras. They're taught how to be prepared. They're baptized into Jesus. They're, they're, they're taught what it means to have the gift of the Holy Spirit, to be forgiven of their sins. They're taught what it means to, to share Jesus with other people, what it means to trust and follow Jesus. They're discipled and they live out that discipleship. They're obedient. They put the teachings into practice. Those Gentiles who put the teachings into practice, they're going to be part of the wedding party. Jesus is being very clear. So the Pharisees at this point try some different things to trick him. Uh, here's the, the thing about, um, you know, render under Caesar, what is Caesar's under God, what is God's, that sort of thing. Uh, the, the thing I would point out about this particular section is this. He says, whose image is on the coin? And it's a denarius, and so it has Caesar's image on the coin. So he says, well, give to Caesar what has his image on it. The implication is, give to God what has his image on it. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, we bear the image of God. We are created in God's image. We belong to him. We don't belong to Caesar. We belong to God. And once again, I would just remind you, when we're king, citizens of the kingdom, we act on Kingdom morality. We act on kingdom mission. We act on kingdom priority. Uh, one way in which this plays out is this. When I'm a self-appointed chaplain, I've used that phrase before, make myself the, a self-appointed chaplain of, of a restaurant or of a coffee shop. Sometimes I'll kind of overstay my welcome a little bit at a table. I know it might kind of irritate them a little bit. And I usually make up for it by, by tipping them well because I want to take care of them. But if my goal is to get to know people and to be known by people, if that's my kingdom goal, and building relationships, which lead to discipleship, which produce fruit, both in my life and in theirs, then that goal, that's really more important than them getting their tables turned over, right? If I were just a citizen of the world, I'd say, hey, let's get off the table so these people can make the most money possible. I, I appreciate that, and I'm sensitive to that. But if my first goal 
as a self-appointed chaplain is kingdom goal, then my first goal is going to be to build relationship that's going to lead them to Jesus. And all other goals are going to become second to that. I have a lot of friends that do door knocking and they have no problem walking right up to, to even doors that say um, no soliciting because they say, well, I'm not soliciting. You know, I am trying to save their soul. I'm bringing Jesus to them. And I don't care if they call the cops. I don't care anything about that. They report me to whatever, because quite frankly, my mission is more important. We've had friends that have done so much uh, evangelism in public that they've been thrown out of stores. They've been thrown out of grocery stores. They've been thrown out of restaurants. They've been thrown out of shops. They've been thrown out of parking lots. They keep doing it. Why? Because their kingdom goals are more important than the goals of the world. So um, that's what a, uh, a lot of these stories are about, particularly this one here about giving Caesar what Caesar's, but giving God what's God's. You bear the image of God. So make sure that you give him your everything. Sadducees ask a question about the resurrection and Jesus uh, gripes at them and gives them an answer that um, shows that they don't even know what they're talking about. They don't even have the right kind of teaching. So then ask, Jesus asks, what are the most important commands. And of course, the correct answer is given. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and um, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says the law and the prophet depends on these two commands. Um, so uh, then Jesus starts asking them questions. So you see how Jesus has moved from the questions from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these nitpicky questions over politics or over the resurrection, logistics of resurrection, something like that. Now he's moved into uh, the primary commands, what's the foundational? Let's talk about foundational things. Let's drink milk. Since you guys are unable to eat solid food, you're, you're arguing about these nitpicky doctrinal things that uh, at the end of the day, what are you even talking about? You don't have the big stuff down. So why are you why are you arguing about these nitpicky things? Let's talk about the big stuff first. Then he asked them a question. How is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls the Lord, Lord, calls the Messiah, Lord? How can David call the Messiah, Lord? If David calls him Lord, then how can he be his son? These are questions that are very confusing if you're only Jewish. But of course, those of us who are Christian understand this because we know who Jesus is. We know that he is the son of David biologically, but by being Lord, he's Lord over all, has authority over all. It makes sense to us, those, who, those of us who follow Christ. It would have been a difficult concept for a Pharisee or a Sadducee. And when Jesus poses that question to him, what he's showing them is, here's a really important tenet of scripture about David, about the Messiah, and you don't understand it. You can't answer this question. You're supposed to be teaching these things. You don't understand. This is a really foundational thing that you ought to be able to understand and have an answer for, and you don't know how to answer it. And at that point, they're pretty much shamed. In fact, Scripture says from that day on, no one dared to question him anymore. Then we get to Matthew chapter 23, and this is where Jesus really uh, denounces the religious hypocrites. And I'm not going to read all of this for time's sake, but you'll see it's just uh, the whole chapter is read. Um, it's just the words of Jesus. And many of the verses begin with, woe to you, beginning in verse 13. Uh, look at verse 12. It's a reiteration of this first, last, last, first concept. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, verse 11, the greatest among you will be your servant, right? And so he calls the Pharisees hypocrites and the scribes, uh, blind guides, um, has some things to say about their, their oath and, and the kind of things that they eat. Uh, look at verse 24, blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you gulp down a camel. You see the exclamation points here. Jesus is making a humorous hyperbolic statement, but it, it's really not hyperbole because one of the things that they had to do as part of, uh, you know, they're not allowed to eat certain kind of insects. So, um, you know, um, 
for, for, for fear that some unclean insect had gotten into their water, they would have a, a strainer and they would strain all of their water through a strainer just in case it was a little gnat in there. Maybe they even couldn't see. They'd strain that out. Uh, camels were also unclean food, but you know, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of nice. It's kind of tastes good. And, uh, it's a camel steak. It's like really fancy and, uh, people who are really important eat camel steak. So they'll have a camel steak every now and then. I mean, what's the big deal, right? And so Jesus is saying, what's the point of straining out gnats? If you're literally going to eat a camel, what's the point? What are you doing it for? You're a hypocrite. You have no, you have no intention of obeying the laws that you shove down other people's throats. You use the law to stand on the necks of other people. And what do you do? You do whatever you want. And so Jesus has a lot of angry words to say to them. You're whitewashed tombs. You appear beautiful on the outside, but you're full of bones and dead on the inside. Uh, so once again, we, we see throughout this whole diatribe here, this idea of two. You're supposed to be this, but instead you're this. You're supposed, you think that you're in, but actually you're not. You're going to be out, and this is the Gentiles who are going to be in. And we see this contrast being prepared. And look what he says here in verse 33. Snakes, brood of vipers. So now we come full circle to this brood of vipers idea. Remember when we've seen brood of vipers before? It's brood of vipers. If you don't bear any fruit, you're going to be cut off and thrown into the fire. We started with the fig tree, and now we end here with this brood of vipers. Here's what this really means. And so we see Jesus telling them, um, how can you escape being condemned to hell? The rhetorical question, uh, the answer being, of course, you can't. Uh, this is why I'm sending you prophets, sages, and scribes, but you just kill them and crucify them and flog them. From Abel to Zechariah, that has the benefit of being from A to Z in English, but really it's just the first and last of the um, Jewish, uh, you know, the, the, the prophets, the well-known um, righteous people from what we would call the Old Testament. And then the final verses here, what we have is Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem. How often I wanted to gather your children together as hens under her, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Again, going back to that parable of the two sons, one was willing and one wasn't. One said he was willing, but didn't. One didn't, wasn't willing to begin with, but actually went and obeyed. Jesus is saying, oh, Jerusalem, I wanted you to obey, but you just didn't do it. And now your house is left desolate. And he's going to talk in uh, the next couple of chapters about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and all that. Last verse, verse 39. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So that's the section for tonight. I want to pull up the discipling handbook once again in our last couple of minutes here. And I want to look at uh, one particular page. So again, this is available at uh, northboulevard.com slash dbs. I'll put that northboulevard.com slash dbs. And I'll put that in the comments there for you so you can come back and take a look at it. And I'm looking at this page here. This is page 11. So page 11, this page on the left here, a mature disciple. How will I know a disciple is maturing in Christ. So this is helping you who are discipling other people, but this also really is self-assessment. How do I know if I'm maturing in Christ? And uh, I just, I'll let you read the page when you download the PDF for yourself, but look at these five headings. You're surrendering to Christ, which means being born into a new life. That you're submitting to Christ's teachings, meaning you're living right with God and people. You're supporting Christ's people, 
which means that you're growing with other believers. You're serving Christ's ministry, which means you're out there doing good works of the kingdom. And you're sharing Christ with other people. In other words, you're making disciples. You're helping other people trust and follow Jesus. So if we go back a page and we look at the discipleship wheel, we see there's uh, people who are dead and people who are a spiritual infant, people who are a spiritual child, people who are a spiritual young adult, people who are spiritual parents. And the four things that we do with uh, people at each of these stages, with people who are dead, we, we share the gospel with them. They have to have a conversion. They have to have an authentic conversion to Jesus Christ. They have to be baptized and be born again. People who are spiritual infants, they have to have new truths and new habits and new behaviors shared with them. They have to make um, a, a, a real commitment to righteous and holy living. With uh, spiritual children, it's all about connection. We got to connect them with a small group, with a with a church family, and, and to their own purpose in the kingdom. And this is all about immersing them in the life of the church, so that as they mature into a young adult, we train them to minister and we release them to minister on their own. And what they're doing as in in ministry is they are active. They are active in ministry and serving other people and become others-centered and God-centered. And then eventually, they're mature enough that they can parent someone else. They can lead someone else in discipleship and help them grow. And so as we're training them to be a disciple-maker, we're training them to make disciples and share Jesus. So as someone grows and matures around this wheel, they reach sort of each of these milestone stages. They're baptized. That's the day of their conversion. Uh, They... Are, um, they, they commit to righteous and holy living as they decide to, to, to follow on the, the mission of God. As they join a church, they decide to be immersed in the life of the church. When they join a small group or when they join a church, when they um, begin uh, working in a ministry, they, they're now active in ministry for the first time. There's a milestone event. When they start discipling for the first time, that's a milestone event. So we can look at these things all as milestone events, but if we look at what a mature disciple does, All five of these things, authentic conversion, righteous and holy living, immersed in the life of the church, active in ministry, sharing Jesus, these are five things that you should be doing every day. And so when we look at a mature disciple, what we see is someone who is experiencing authentic conversion every day. Remember what repentance means. Repent means I'm going to turn around. I'm going to change my heart and mind, and I'm going to turn around, and I'm going to go the other direction. Well, we still got a long way to go. We're still constantly heading. Remember, Jesus doesn't say, come here. He says, follow me. Jesus is on the move, and if we're headed in the wrong direction, we've got to turn around and continue following him and keep following him. We're constantly repenting. We're constantly moving. We're constantly experiencing conversion, that authentic conversion. We're doing that every day. Righteous and holy living. We have to recommit to that every day. We failed yesterday. We're going to fail tomorrow. But today, we're going to make the commitment today. We're going to do it today. Right? We can't be perfect in every moment, but we can be perfect in this moment. We can make the moment that we can make the choice that the Spirit wants us to make in this moment. So if we can be obedient in this moment, then this moment will be perfect. Right? We'll commit to righteous and holy living. We'll immerse ourselves in the life of the church. Yes, we have to do that when we join a small group and when we join a church, but we have to continue being part of a church body. We have to continue being part of a community of believers. We have to continue hanging out with uh, the brothers and sisters that we love and care about and and listen to them when they have things that they want to talk about and and share our things when we have things that we need to talk about. Every day, we've got to continually be immersed in the life of the church. Being active in ministry doesn't mean going on one mission trip one time in your life. It means always in your life, finding a way to minister to others, to look for persons of peace that have 
a need that you can meet, reaching out to them and meeting those needs. And we're always to be sharing Christ with other people. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi said, uh, preach Christ at all times, use words if necessary. Obviously, you're going to have to use words if you're going to actually share the gospel with somebody. But what he's getting at is in all of your actions and everything you do, everything you do should be helping other people get closer to God. You should be always pointing people towards Jesus, towards Jesus's principles, towards the, the, the way of thinking. Sometimes I'll have friends that will tell me about things that they're doing and they're just involved in things of the world. Some of it's not even you know, necessarily bad. It's just from a worldly worldview, you know, and I always try to find an opportunity to ask a question about that. You know, what's your source for love? Oh, where, where do you make your decisions? Uh, how do you think people should learn how to raise children? You just, I'm, I'm not calling anything that they're doing into judgment, but but providing an opportunity for, for them to sort of think through why do they believe some of the things that they believe and would they be open to believing some of the things that Jesus teaches? Everything you do should be sharing Jesus. So what does a mature disciple look like? It's somebody who surrenders to Christ, who submits to Christ's teaching, who supports Christ's people, who serves Christ's ministry, and is sharing Christ and uh, making disciples. Someone who is bearing fruit, not just in these five things in their lives, but someone who is teaching other people how to trust and follow Jesus and there's actually more people now trusting and following Jesus because of them. That's someone who is maturing as a disciple. That's someone who is bearing fruit. That is someone who is obeying. And if it's us Gentiles that are doing that, Jesus says, you're invited. And if you're dressed and prepared and ready, come on in. It's going to be a huge party. But if we're just religious, if we're more concerned about this and that nitpicky doctrine and what separates and divides us, from, from you know, uh, this kind of church or that kind of church and these kinds of things. If we, if we get down into this really nitpicky stuff and logistics of the resurrection or the, or what heaven's going to be like or whether or not there's a, a rapture, or we, we get into all these kinds of nitpicky arguments among Christians, people on the outside, they don't even know what we're talking about. And honestly, Jesus, through the stories that we see here, I don't think Jesus knows what we're talking about either sometimes. Jesus just says, why are you talking about that? Why don't you go back to first things? Why don't you forget all that and go back and start obeying first things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. All that other nitpicky stuff you'll figure out if you will really commit to doing those two things properly. You'll study the scriptures and you'll understand them when that's your motive. If your motive is maintaining the status quo, if your motive is maintaining church as you know it, if your motive is being right, if your motive is winning the argument, None of those things are going to get you to the truth. What's going to get you to the truth is loving God and loving others. You got to love Christ and show Christ, right? A friend of mine, that was his um, uh, slogan that he had at the church that he preached at uh, a while back. Uh, know Christ and show Christ. Oh, that's great. That's what we should be doing. And if we're not bearing fruit, then we need to know that all these words of red that begin with woe to you, they're directed at us. If we're not bearing fruit, Jesus says to us, you brood of vipers. If we're not bearing fruit, Jesus says to us, you're going to be cut off and you're going to be thrown into the fire. You're going to wither up and you'll never bear fruit again. But for those of us who hear the teachings and obey, it's going to be a huge party. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.